Welcome to Logistics with Purpose, presented by Vector Global Logistics in partnership with Supply Chain Now. We spotlight and celebrate organizations who are dedicated to creating a positive impact. Join us for this behind-the-scenes glimpse of the origin stories, change-making progress, and future plans of organizations who are actively making a difference. Our goal isn't just to entertain you, but to inspire you to go out and change the world. And now, here's today's episode of Logistics with Purpose. Hi, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Logistics with Purpose. I'm Christy Porter with Vector Global Logistics, and today I am delighted um, to introduce you to Winona Satcher, CEO and founder of Maker Studio. So, hey, Winona, it's so good to see you. Same, Christy. I'm excited about our chat today. Good to see you again. Ah, you too. I am a longtime fan. So I, as I said, I'm excited to create more fans um, and hear more about you and what you've been up to. Um, for everyone who doesn't yet follow her on LinkedIn, you definitely need to do that to stay up to date with them. But before we get into Maker Studio, which has a lot of incredible projects and visions for the future and everything, I, I want um, us to share and talk a little bit more about your background. This is something I don't know, so I'm excited to learn. So tell us, first of all, uh, where you grew up. What was your childhood like? Yeah, so I grew up born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where we are headquartered now. Uh, and uh, for generations upon generations uh, from here. Uh, and very interesting childhood in the sense of. Um, being from the city, but then uh, moving out like a lot of families uh, during uh, the uh, late 80s and early 90s, specifically black families to uh, the suburbs, um, and then ended up moving back to, um, uh, well, actually moving to the suburbs on the on the east side. We yeah. originally moved from the suburbs to the south. Uh, and, and the east side was interesting because, um, you know, that was my first I would say interaction with a huge international student population, which had a huge um, uh, impact on why we do what we do, why I do what, what I do now at Maker Studio, uh, and just uh, you know delving into different types of uh, foods and uh, languages, um, uh, and uh, you know more of the inclusion, inclusion and diversity. Uh, opportunities uh, uh, at the beginning, you know, at the early on onset of, of middle school and high school. And during that time, uh, also, because even though I lived in the same county, there was an opportunity to take uh, courses at a better high school. So, so schools in the neighborhood that I lived in weren't that great, which was highly unfortunate. Uh, but we were able to, those of us who wanted to look at the opportunities for better programs and better classes, we ended up having to take two buses to get to school and two buses to get home. So uh, I was part of the end, well, almost the end of the busing system that was established during um, uh, later parts of Jim Crow for integrating uh, schools. So, you know, while that provided opportunity at the same time, uh, we shouldn't have had to right. do that, right? Like the opportunity should have been in our community. So that definitely had a huge yeah. Uh, impact on why, you know, I do what I do now. But before that, um, I started, uh, uh, you know, drawing and building. I, I didn't know what I was doing at that time, but looking back on it, uh, building, you know, cities and neighborhoods with yeah. crayons and all kinds of things uh, for <laughs> hours on the floor. And, and of course, now looking back, that's what I do now in a sense, right? Almost almost a portion of that. So, um, you know, very, very cool childhood, very fun. Uh, it's a very 
um, you know, interesting, diverse, inclusive, uh, and all of that has definitely had an impact to what I do today, for what I do today. Uh, and then after high school, I ended up uh, attending Auburn University mm -hmm. College of Architecture, Design and Construction for undergrad and grad. Um, and end up graduating a dual degree in landscape architecture and city planning. And then, like most students, and, and went to work right after that. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. It is getting more and more rare to meet a native Atlanta <laughs> that is still here. Yes, so, that's what I've heard. Yes, <laughs> yeah. so that is you. Yeah, and most people I talk to have, of course, flown through Atlanta. Um, mm -hmm. Our airport is the world's busiest airport, but... Um, you know, you are also talking about our wonderful diversity. Uh, yes. Atlanta is an amazing, amazing city for food, for culture, just to meet and, and see the intersection of people. So, yeah, tell me a little bit more, if you would, about, about that aspect and kind of how that opened your eyes to um, just what else is out there. But it was right there at home as well. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and that's the, the beautiful, the beautiful piece to what I call old Atlanta. Uh, yeah. It, it a, a very interesting culmination of, um, you know, having my grandparents and parents uh, active in, uh, especially my grandparents in a civil rights movement and participating heavily um, with Dr. Martin Luther King and, and Ralph David Abernathy and a lot of other, you know, civil rights activists uh, that we all know. I hope that we all know. Yeah. Uh, and so so that was obviously a big part of growing up in Atlanta and what that meant for the city and for actually the, the, the country and the world. Uh, and, and a lot of that started here, right here in our city. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, um, you know, growing up during the time of uh, when the Olympics came in 96, but the preparation for the Olympics, a lot of that was not positive for a lot of people. So a lot of people were uh, displaced pushed out because of the overwhelming uh, um, teardowns of the public housing, a lot of public housing. In fact, Atlanta had one of the largest, as far as a city, uh, amounts of public housing in any city in the United States. Oh, and know. so all of that, especially Techwood homes, a lot of public housing was torn down in preparation for um, uh, the Olympics. And of course, the majority of those individuals were not, uh, did not come back for right. a lot of reasons. Uh, and especially a lot of promises were not made. And that story needs to be told more. But that had a huge impact on the question in my mind about equity and housing and inclusivity uh, and community development and affordable housing uh, is specific to housing. Um, but so we had civil rights piece. Another great uh, topic for today. <laughs> well, no, yeah, that's right. That it's definitely wild out there. That. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's so and so it's, we have we've seen this before, but now it is affecting you know a lot more people, yeah. um, and and that has been before it was predominantly uh, black and brown communities. Mm -hmm. Now you're starting to see uh, it's not just black and brown communities. So there's a larger conversation around that. Mm -hmm. uh, but so so the, the pre civil rights component and the learning and being reared in that kind of space to seeing uh, being old enough to under, to almost understand or at least question what was happening during the in the mid nineties, the Olympics. Yeah. And then after that, um, the, uh, you know, so the resurgence of uh, this, this newer version of Atlanta for good and bad. Um, but all through that still having uh, some of the triples of a lot of the racism that uh, we uh, saw uh and, and a lot of racism that we felt uh, living in the sub southern suburbs of Atlanta at that time. And then, of course, the poverty that we started to see as well uh, post the Olympics. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also the international, though, community that that sort of arose out of the Olympics is, was also something that was very 
one of the great things that did happen along the International Village and Beaver Highway and having access to international markets, um, you know, more for the foods, culture, languages. So that was that part has, has is still here uh, and it's growing. Uh, and that has been great because I, that's just what I love. I love cities. That's what I that's what yeah. I've studied. Um, but to see all those different components and how sometimes they they interact and sometimes how they can be very destructive. Uh, has all led to, you know, where we are now politically and um, how our city and metro Atlanta area has been uh, developed over time. So the question now really is, with all of that, especially being from here, you know, how does that affect developing, designing communities for, for people that, you know, people that want to live or, commu- or kids that want to stay? Uh, and what does that look like? And where do people want to live? What what does that place look like? And I think that's where Atlanta is right now, specifically as a city, but um, yeah, very very interesting uh, time from when I was born in eighty one uh, to living through all of that till now, and actually coming back to Atlanta and starting a business. Yeah, well, I want to back up for just a second because you know we only got just a little glimpse of you're talking about your grandparents and even your parents and their interactions, um, their ability to interact with iconic civil rights leaders. They were a part of that movement. Um, It's certainly one of the things Atlanta is known for. It's probably one of our prouder moments. Um, But I'm curious if you have any stories to share or any things that you've gleaned from the time that they were actually a part of that movement and being able to interact and being on the front lines of such an important moment in history. Yeah, uh, so uh, my grandfather was was uh, born and grew up in Middle Georgia and Macon, okay. uh, and so um, this is pre the civil rights. This mm-hmm. was at the you know um, the very beginnings of Jim Crow when it was extremely rough, and you know some of his story. And of course, he and he, he grew up uh, grew up with um, uh, James Brown he, he, from between Augusta and Macon. He also had stories of uh, you know um, uh, uh, growing up with um, Little Richard uh, and a lot of those musicians down there. He had his own band. Everybody almost probably had their own band at that time before he got drafted <laughs> later yeah. on. But um, but you know, having to grow up in a place where you know they couldn't go to swimming pools, so they had to uh, swim what they call swimming holes uh, mm-hmm. in the river. Uh, to you know, buying uh, even cigarettes for someone in the in the neighborhood, and they, I think the silver the, the cigarettes name of the cigarettes was uh, uh, Prince Albert, and so when he had to when he would go buy a pack of cigarettes for someone in the community, he'd have to say, "I want to buy Mister Prince Albert." It's just little things like that uh, yeah. that really ridiculous, yeah. uh, but but very subtle uh, yeah. that just sort of chipped away at Absolutely. you know you know, the, uh, the, the, your integrity. Um, In the meantime, my grandmother was born here in Southwest Atlanta uh, in the Pittsburgh community, which is where, you know, my grandmother's side we're all all from. And she remembered, she would tell me stories about, um, you know, being here in Southwest Atlanta and uh, her grandfather, who's Irish, Mm -hmm. uh, the only, the only uh, white man that was in the community, Mm -hmm. he and the other black men in the community would, uh, every you know, every other night, really late, would get their shotguns and put on their boots, and they'd line up in the street because the Klan was coming down uh, the wow. street to ward them off. And, and so, all of that had an impression on her. Absolutely, she was one of three. One, it was three sisters. She was the youngest, but she was the most vocal <laughs> uh, and the most uh, uh, energetic when it came to uh, the, the start of the civil rights movement. And so, uh, she was, you know, someone who 
she didn't move from her seat on the bus either. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she participated in a lot of sit-ins. Um, uh, she participated in um, uh, organizing four sit-ins and four mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, marches at Pascal's Restaurant uh, here in Atlanta. Um, and uh, was a huge supporter and advocate for Mayor Maynard Jackson, uh, you know, the, uh, Herman Russell. Um, and uh, so, yeah, really sort of deep in, in, into that into that space. My mom and her and my aunts, they ended up um, have, spending their time in, in Catholic school here in Atlanta with the Malou family at St. Pius. Uh, so if anything I know about politics, you know about Malou family in Georgia. Um, and so they had a, a different experience when it as far as educational component, uh, going to Catholic schools, although my mom was one of the only Black kids uh, at St. Pius at that time, so it wasn't easy either for her. So learning all of that and being supportive when I started, when I came along and was growing up, making sure that uh, I loved who, you know, always had self-love and making sure that I stood up for what I believed in and they stood up for me as being uh, grandparents and parents, uncles. Uh, that's just something that's embedded uh, in what who I am and what we do, especially around these being in service part of it. So uh, growing up you know, early on, and my parents would take me to soup kitchens to help, you know, uh, prepare food and feed homeless to volunteering uh, to uh, going to a lot, a lot of uh, libraries where they had conversations around, um, you know, uh, uh, civil rights and, and the civil rights impact and how to promote and progress uh, the learnings from from the civil rights movement. So that was just a part of um, growing up. It wasn't anything uh, that it's just it's just it was just a, it's another language for me, honestly. And then I think also a piece that was really important um, at that time. My grandmother was heavy, especially in the seventies. Um, she was involved and, and just kept learning and 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 and, and um, educating herself around the new MPU system, neighborhood planning unit system, and how Mayor Maynard Jackson was supporting and helping to create these neighborhood uh, advocacy and neighborhood-led associations that supported uh, or very vocalized, um, you know, their needs and, and interests to city government, city officials, which was a groundbreaking way, actually nationally from a planning standpoint, of how to engage communities around uh, development, future development, infrastructure, transportation, education, public school systems, and so forth. And one of the key neighborhoods that always fascinated me with, with her stories of paying attention to all of that and evolution of those MPUs and how, how serious people were at that time to create equitable communities, especially after all of these, the white flight from the city of Atlanta and so forth, uh, was Little Five Points. And so Little Five Points became, uh, you know, as, as eclectic as it is, uh, has always been really my haven and my safe zone uh, when I was growing up going to school. Um uh, in, in middle school and high school, uh, because that was for me the one of the most diverse uh, mm-hmm. and inclusive. If you know Little Five Points, you know what I'm <laughs> talking about. Places <laughs> to go. Uh, so, um, so just to see how all of all of the political aspects were threaded through the actual development and land use um, of of neighborhoods in Atlanta uh, and Atlanta metro area. Yeah. Wow. What an incredible legacy to be a part of. How proud you <laughs> must be. 
um, really remarkable work. And for those of you uh, who may not live here in Atlanta, or maybe you do live here but haven't gone yet, highly encourage you. This reminded me to go to the National Center um, for Civil Rights. It's yes. incredible. There is also a, one of the most moving experiences that I've told people about is the lunch counter there where you yes. sit and you put the headphones on and you hear, you know, you have to remain calm. You have to put your hands on the table. Um, and in the, in your headphones, people are yelling at you, terrible, mm-hmm. terrible things. And it is, I was just, you know, tears streaming down my face. I mean, I can't, that's a simulated experience. I can't imagine the real thing and just remarkable. So, um, yeah. yeah and in fact, my mom's um, first, her very first job and she was a teenager was at a dairy queen on the west side of town uh, near the AUC, AUC, so Atlanta University Center, Morehouse Spellman, mm-hmm. Morris Brown, Atlanta Theological Seminary. Uh, and her her boss, uh, Mr. Hank Johnson, um, who owned several restaurants, I just found out recently that he was a freedom writer, and I didn't know that, and okay. she didn't know that. Yeah, from a contact back in Durham, which is where I started my, my career in North Carolina. But he was one of the original freedom writers, and their bus was bombed. Um, but to, but he's a he's longtime hotelier and restaurateur here in Atlanta and, and actually in middle Georgia as well. Uh, but just to be that close, mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, those courageous individuals, yeah. um, you know, talk about six degrees of separation. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it, at some point you run into someone in Atlanta who, uh, if you say long enough, who was part of all of that. Right. So. Yeah, well, yeah, we've dug deep into Atlanta history here, which I'm loving. Hopefully this encourages more people to visit or to get out and explore um, their own neighborhood. And I want to touch on something that no matter where somebody is that you mentioned as well, that I think is so important, um, which is you said part of the language growing up was the volunteering and the being able to meet people from different walks of life Um, for the parents out there or really involved aunts and uncles and um, uh, aunties and uncles and from, you know, grandparents standpoint, getting kids out, being able to show them different walks of life, being able to volunteer and be around um, other people who maybe they can't imagine those kinds of circumstances to be homeless or to be uh, that vulnerable. What what was yeah. that like for you as a kid that other people can be, you know, take that away from and say, yeah, I need to really get my kids away from a screen mm-hmm. and into an environment like that? Yeah, it was, it was, it was, you know, extremely impactful. Of course, then as a child in the midst of it, uh, you don't understand all right. of it, which is where your parents come in to yeah. explain as best as they can uh, some of the issues and the challenges that people face. Um, but, you know, and, and, I, and for me, when, once, once, and then I was probably seven years old when I started six or seven doing that. Um, and the constant conversation from my grandparents and parents about why these situations exist in a way that I could understand it as best as I could. Um, you know, just it helps you to create a level of empathy that is critical if you really want to solve the world's problems or at least change the rules um, to a point where, you know, you, you sympathize, you empathize and understand as much as you can uh, and wanting to really make a difference. And kids naturally are like that. They are naturally creative. They're naturally mm-hmm. interested. They're naturally courageous. You know, they're naturally um gifted in being empathetic mm-hmm. and, and having a good heart. And that is a perfect time uh, to introduce children uh, to other ways, other lifestyles. Uh, and so that they can start to ask questions and they can start to figure out on their journey, you know, how to solve solutions to real problems, not just symptoms. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what's, what was interesting when you participate and volunteer 
uh, whether it's in soup kitchens or, or your church or, you know, other organizations uh, or start your own mm-hmm. uh, or a small organization as a kid. Um, you know, you start seeing people who look like you. Uh, you start seeing people who, uh, you know, maybe their kids go to your school and you didn't know that they were homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, you start to see people that live in your neighborhood uh, or people that work with your parents. Uh, and it really is about the village and community building. I think we've lost a lot of that uh, mm-hmm. because we are so focused on electronics instead of focused on the actual reality mm-hmm. of what people are going through. It's also interesting because it helps you gain a greater perspective as you get older, how close you are to being in that situation yeah. uh, because of all of the other exter- external environmental factors that you just can't control. Right. Uh, so it just makes you more of a thoughtful individual. Uh, I think it makes you more uh, of of um, a natural leader in the sense of wanting to take the problem by the reins and let's go, let's figure this out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also reminds you that there are good people in the world who, right. um, you know, share your values and do want to su- either be a leader with of an organization or of an, of an idea or support someone else who's doing it. Um, and then I think the last thing is that there's always a need for to, for, for being in service to others. Right. Uh, that's critical. Uh, and so if we can't continue to be on this individualistic um, journey and think things are going to work out, we really have to understand the value that we are of, of being interconnected because we are. So that interconnectedness is, is critical uh, in, in our evolution, as I think, as a human race. And uh, I saw that early on participating in all of those sorts of, um, you know, uh, meetings, events, um, you know, soup kitchens, whatever the need was, um, you know, I was there. But I think that at the end of the day, my parents being there with me was the critical piece because they could then explain, you know, in a way that I would understand it at that time. For sure. Yeah. Thank you. That's um, really beautiful. Um, So let's fast forward a few years. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed learning more about your childhood, but let's get a little bit more into your career as well. So you're graduated now. What does that look like before starting Maker Studio? And I guess also, let me ask, you talked about city planning and drawing with crayons, city, you know, intersections and things like that. That's something I have no frame of reference for. So (laughs) what was it that drew you to that? What, what, how did that come to be? And did you decide, Hey, this is something I really want to learn more about and do with my life? I honestly don't know where it came from. Uh, I started doing that around probably third or fourth grade. Wow. Um, and uh, I would literally just take over the whole living room floor with <laughs> crayons and my toy cars and trucks and dump trucks and building blocks and wow. spend hours on the floor. And, you know, the one cool thing about it, my parents never, you know, got irritated or yelled or said, pick up your stuff. They let me figure out whatever I was trying to figure out. Now, who mm-hmm. knew? You know, I remember my grandmother would say she always wondered what I was thinking. I don't even remember. Um, but, and I didn't, we didn't know what it, what it was. People get paid for this? <laughs> yeah, I had no idea and, and didn't know it was a thing. It was just, you know, something that I naturally was yeah. drawn to for some reason. And they just kept encouraging it um, as I grew older. And so, um, you know, to fast forward, when I when I was accepted into Auburn, you know, you typically only hear about architecture. So that's what I, I started out in. and then quickly realized, and, and, and this is with the help of the chair of the program at that time, Jack Williams, um, we have, there's another type of design is called landscape architecture and fell completely in love with it because it was about that, looking at 
ecosystems versus a building looking at the whole right. and understanding how all of the components from the natural ecology of the site, uh, uh, plant animal ecology to the social components, which that really resonated with me having grown up in Atlanta, uh, and that things are built and designed and developed for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, people live in poverty for a reason, that public housing looks the way it does for a reason. Uh, and then in graduate school, that's when I started the planning uh, uh, program and didn't know anything about that until then. It was really excited and overlaying the policy piece to the design piece yeah. uh, and then around real estate development. And I ended up becoming the first African-American graduate in the history of Auburn um, from those programs. Didn't know that either. (laughs) Uh, What was weird, though, was the building was named after George Wallace. And anybody knows who that is. If you Google George Wallace, that's a huge stain on um, the history of the United States, especially education. And so, you know, to be in a building where that's named after someone that says segregation forever, mm-hmm. you know, was difficult, <laughs> but we, I persisted, right. We, we made it out. Um, and so uh, with, with those degrees, I started out on the natural trajectory of working for private firms in North Carolina. That was where um, I started my career. And uh, it wasn't until um, uh, I started working, I was laid off during a recession of 08, like a lot of people. Um, and well, actually, let me back up. The firm I was working for before the recession was an awesome firm because that was my first ex- uh, in, uh, my first um, uh, opportunity to work with uh, a bunch of different other types of disciplines. Mm-hmm. So everyone from electrical engineering to architecture to interior architecture to, of course, LA and planning to HVAC, plan, you know, plumbing engineers. And my, I've always had a love and a knack for multidisciplinary approach to solving problems. And so that was really cool to be able to work with yeah. all sorts of different disciplines and how they see the world. Um, and then with the recession, I ended up uh, working for another firm. I met my husband at that firm, who's also a landscape architect, uh, and then ended up working for the city of Durham, North Carolina. And that was a huge difference <laughs> uh, and made a, a big impact on my life working in the public sector. Uh, you know, government is not the most innovative space, uh, but it is a great space to learn the hard way, unfortunately, what happens when you do cry, try to be creative in a space that's not built for that. But you also learn how the systems work and don't work yeah. and why. Uh, and so being able to learn certain key elements of governance uh, was critical in the work that we're doing now because I can translate you know, what the requirements are to build something or to advocate for something in a way that um, the recipients of uh, these decisions can then say, nope, that's not going to work for us. Oh, now we understand why things are the way they are. Let's revisit and let's change the way, you know, this this is working. It's not working for the majority of us. So that was a very difficult, but interesting and challenging environment to work for. And I resigned in 2016. My husband and I moved here to Atlanta. My husband's actually from South Dakota. Um, uh, and of course, just like you mentioned earlier, Christy, most people don't know about, except for the airport. And so this was a huge <laughs> surprise. <laughs> uh, once I started taking them around the different neighborhoods, so yeah. excited about the city. Uh, and we moved back here to Atlanta. And that's when we started Maker Studio in 2017. Uh, and we've been 
going from there ever since. Yeah. Well, and going is definitely the word to use. You are always going, <laughs> always doing something so interesting. And now I think, you know, I'm excited to tell everybody more um, for you to tell everybody more about Maker Studio, because now knowing a little bit more of your background, I think it's such an interesting juxtaposition and a way to continue your family's legacy in a a way that I'm sure they would have never imagined. It, did, it wasn't a linear path for sure. Uh, Not at all. <laughs> but it's, yeah, but it's a really interesting way to continue that work from a completely different angle. So share more about um, what Maker Studio is, why you decided to start it. And yeah, just tell us a little bit about the mission behind it. Sure. So, um, so Maker Studio, you know, we, so we are a design build green manufacturing company. Uh, we specialize in modular real estate and using recycled renewable materials uh, to provide affordable, energy efficient housing. Uh, we hope to attain net zero housing uh, mm. in the future. Wow. Um, so 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 there is the intersection of, of course, designing of spaces uh, to prepare for the, the real estate solutions that we build. Uh, so that that is, of course, obviously uh, kind of touches on landscape architecture and site development and planning, well, site development piece. Then there is the whole hard, deep conversation around affordable housing and uh, what does that mean, the different types of affordable housing. So now you're talking about community engagement, civic engagement, advocacy, um, you know, NIMBY's not in my backyard and yes, in my backyard and, 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 and opportunities to, uh, to advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves for whatever reason, to be able to build housing for these individuals who need to be able to live, work, and play in the same space. Uh, and then, of course, there's the intersection uh, of job creation uh, and manufacturing and, and bringing jobs back to our communities here in the United States uh, and, and being able to source local uh, materials to build um, sustainable and structurally sound housing, which then leads to the intersection um, of uh, the actual construction part of it and the sustainability piece of it, which we have just started really promoting our company as being um, more in the climate tech scene than, than before. We hadn't really thought about it in that way. Uh, so that has propelled us into a lot of more interesting and new conversations around um, how to scale and who to build for. Uh, so all of this came out of uh, uh, all of the past experience that I mentioned um, a few minutes ago from growing up in a space that was heavily involved in a, a civil rights movement, a family heavily involved in civil rights movement. Atlantic was foundation for that for, for, for many of us. Uh, and then seeing uh, to go from this, this amazing uh, social um, uh, 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 space to uh, people being displaced and impover impoverished and lack of housing uh, to living around an international community within an international community to then learning how to design spaces for all, all kind of culminated into how do we materialize that into physical spaces versus just um, some pie in the sky idea, spaces that we can actually feel, touch, put on the ground and scale uh, because we the affordable housing crisis is a global crisis. And how do we make money doing it? Because you really need to be able to make money to solve right. a problem. Yeah. Uh, so we, we we created a for-profit. Basically, we're seen as a social enterprise mm -hmm. uh, because we are making money for good, right? The whole idea mm -hmm. is to solve global problems around both housing, workforce, and um, poverty and sustainability and clean tech. Uh, and so we started uh, what we are still doing now, uh, we uh, take shipping containers and we retrofit them because it is a, it's a, it's a material that's abundant. 
Um, we don't export that much in the United States, especially uh, during and after the pandemic. Right. Uh, of course, we kind of, we're still, kind of still in the pandemic, but uh, post-pandemic. Um, and the idea of reusing material that's abundant in an urban landscape uh, and retrofitting this material for a better, higher quality use uh, that's readily available, that's affordable to build, so therefore affordable to provide um, to, to those that need affordable housing mm -hmm. and to those that might be able to purchase from us in, 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 in bulk to build affordable housing, but small spaces for large impact. So these spaces can fit in uh, you know, tight urban lots where the land costs are so extremely high and construction costs are so high, it can't justify doing that. Mm -hmm. Well, we can because we build in smaller spaces and we can stack these. So the idea of creating or being creative around materials, being creative around reuse and recycling, sustainability, uh, being creative around what can we do to, to boost affordability and do it in a way that's not conventional, that doesn't require tax credits, you know, that can be built locally and create more jobs uh, by hiring local tradesmen and women and veterans and other women uh, to, to join us in the construction industry and build uh, all of our real estate offsite in a factory. So we just acquired a 29,000 square foot factory in East Point, uh, right outside of the city of Atlanta. Nice. Uh, we're still waiting to move in. It's a building that's under renovation. Uh, we are leasing it. Uh, but that would allow us to build multiple units of housing mm -hmm. at once very quickly uh, through a standardized permitting process. So again, for us, um, the question was, you know, how do we solve a problem or build a new system uh, right. or a new way of thinking or change the rules around the built environment and do it in a way that's both quality, but also efficient to, to start solving the problem quickly. We don't have that much time. Yeah. Uh, so um, that's what we do now. And that's what we will continue to do. We are working on some new product development though, to make us more efficient, even in that approach. Wow. Um, let's jump back to, I want to talk for a second about the manufacturing aspect, because this is one thing that you brought up a few months ago when I heard you uh, speak at an event and we were finally able to meet for the first time yes. in person. But um, you were talking about just manufacturing, what that meant locally, how, the job creation from that and kind of the broken system that it currently exists around it and what it could be. Can you expand on that a little bit more and talk um Kind of sure. reiterate some of those points, which I'm not eloquent. I'm not stating well at all, <laughs> but you'll do it an amazing job with. No, I mean, it, no, good question, Christy, and thanks for for uh, asking that. Because uh, I love to talk about it. I mean, it, it's it's really for us to stand back at a higher level and look at how can we democratize uh, the supply chain. Uh, you know, we've recently all seen just how um, you know sensitive uh, our supply chains are when during the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, we need to be able to produce and make and build locally. We also need to be able to teach and train uh, and tradesmen and women and those individuals in the communities that want to build the change they want to see in these skills so that they can build their own generational wealth, not just living it, but literally building it and facilitating, um, you know, equitable uh, opportunities because everything starts at home, right? And so it's not just about the actual structure. It's also about the ability to have access, not just to materials and supply chain, but also just the community services that you need, schools, educate, you know, education, healthcare, uh, lab, you know, everything, grocery stores, access to healthy foods, locally grown foods, another conversation, but still all part of this local supply chain uh, conversation that we've been having internally. Uh, and so how do we fit in with that? How do we support that? 
And it really is about, again, multiple disciplinary approach and collaborating and communicating with local community colleges and trades organizations and youth early on uh, to show them op other opportunities that you, you know, you, you can't, first of all, why are you living the way you live? Uh, and how do, how do we, how do we support you in living better so that you can leave a better legacy? But that means you have to be able to participate and the actual construction, a physical construction, a physical building of your community. And you know, I remember growing up here in Atlanta, passing the Herman Russell building in Northside Drive and wanting to be Herman Russell. Like that's what I want to be when I grow up. Mm -hmm. uh, someone that literally shapes uh, the built environment so that it, but but shapes it for all versus just a few. Uh, but in order to do that, we need to really urban onshore and bring jobs back. Uh, to our communities uh, and learn how to make again, learn how to build again, hence the name of our company, Makers. Um, so uh, being able to take, at least to start out taking a material like a shipping container that was unfortunately built somewhere else, but understanding the component parts and how 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 the science of the, the material and how it works in the environment, exploding those parts, understanding how all the pieces fit together and retrofitting it for a bigger and better use could potentially, and we think, at least for us, it's, it is um, <clears throat> impacting how we, excuse me, how we, how we build better and how we do better, mm -hmm. you know? So it's all about being able to reimagine what you have, where you are for a bigger and better use so that it can create generational wealth. It can create equity, it can bring, uh, it can promote diversity and inclusion and, you can make money doing it. You yeah. can have the resources and the capital to do it. So for me, my obligation as CEO of Maker Studio isn't really uh, to grow, you know, exponentially very quickly, 20, 30 times, which normally you hear about in investor conversations. It really is about, the obligation really is about um, small impact, small, small steps for larger impact that you can build and manufacture locally, scale that sustainably and smartly, uh, in, in collaboration with other solutions out there, but at least to be part of the solution versus part of the problem. Right. So yeah. that that is, for me, the, the 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 excitement around our company transitioning from just recycling a material to actually manufacturing new products in the near future. Yeah, that is exciting. Congratulations on the new space. Our uh, our team will be excited to come tour it one day when it's ready. Yeah, can't wait. Hopefully, uh, hopefully mid October we'll be in. Okay. It. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we talked about the making and the manufacturing. Let's talk about some of the spaces and places. So everybody listening to this podcast is very, very, very intimately familiar with a shipping container. Um, yep. You know, and I, the interesting thing was a few weeks ago, our team went down to um, also down to near the Atlanta airport to tour the Dignity Museum, which is a homeless museum inside a shipping container mm -hmm. um, to raise awareness about that issues. And I think it was one of those moments for our team that also redefined what a shipping container could be. And so that's, yes. I know, one thing that you're working on as well. So talk about um, some of the places, some of your favorite projects and what a shipping container has started as and then become during the process. Yeah, uh, it's, it's really exciting work uh, because it is it, it is different. Um, mm -hmm. It is, it, it does, uh, you know, sort of question what can be a material that you can use uh, successfully and get it permitted for a place as a place to live in. Uh, you know, we get those questions all the time, and it, but it's also not difficult. Uh, it's not that complicated. It, it's something that helps to democratize that access to building your own housing or even commercial spaces. In fact, we started out make, started 
Maker Studio, our first projects to market uh, have been a mixture of residential and commercial. Mm -hmm. uh, this year, as a, as a team internally, we have just decided that our focus is really going to be, we're working on a commercial project right now, it's a shipping container kitchen, or commercial kitchen, incubator kitchen. But um, after this, our, really our focus is going to be uh, housing and residential, new construction as well as retrofits using uh, our uh, shipping container uh, uh, spaces, as well as prefab, other prefab advanced uh, materials that we are going to start producing soon, um, because the need is so great. Right. Uh, but um, you know, our favorite one, I think, to date has, is the one that you see behind me, which is uh, was our first residential unit. Um, it's our first ADU accessory dwelling unit, backyard unit in Old Fourth Ward, mm -hmm. and uh, that one was exciting for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, you know. Conventional construction is difficult in the sense that you can't really, because of the cost of land, especially in communities like Old Fourth Ward that have completely gentrified. Um, you know, you're talking about vacant land lots going for six hundred thousand dollars easily, uh, where you know you can't justify using conventional methods affordable housing, but using modular uh, uh, methods to build shipping container is one type of modular construction where you're building offsite in a factory uh, and develop and, and deploying it to the site. You can, you know, those costs make sense. Uh, interestingly, though, we didn't have a manufacturing site at that time. So space, so we actually had to build that particular unit on site. Uh, that was interesting uh, to be able to fit a 40 foot long container down an alley in a very tight <laughs> lot was an interesting experience. Um, but our clients believed in the, the, the married couple that we built the, built their backyard unit for. They believed in us. And that's all it took. That's really all it takes. It's just one person or two to champion what you're doing because the educational component was difficult. Uh, you know, what should have taken us, you know, a week, two week build and, and installation took us, you know, you're talking about 12 months, 18 months because of the permitting, a uh, city of Atlanta permitting that was so difficult. Uh, you know, we people didn't understand what we were doing. Uh, we didn't fit the typical checklist of mm -hmm. how we build. Um, you know, we had uh, even in the Office of Zoning, uh, <laughs> they were like, well, we can't even intake this project because you don't have enough pages in your set, your plans. Right. It's too small for projects. Like, what does that even mean? Wow. Uh, and so we were, you know, from building supervisors saying, well, this is a dangerous, uh, uh, you know, house because it can be picked up by a tornado and blown away. Just the most ridiculous, <laughs> some of the most ridiculous responses. And that's what we had to fight. We had to really educate uh, those that were in charge of approving the opportunity for affordability. Mm -hmm. um, and that's and that continues to be a fight. However, uh, you know, we'd always planned on what we're doing now, which is going through the certification to be able to standardize how we build so that we don't have to go through uh, building permitting. We can just build it in our factory and be on our way and install it. Uh, but that process of even though it was difficult, it's always the best ex education uh, for a company to be in, 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 in a team to be able to understand how all the pieces fit together to practically do it versus just talking about it in the classroom or, or around a table. Uh, and so we were able to bring this project to life and build an energy efficient, our first energy efficient one bedroom, one bathroom unit, 320 square foot unit for a $55,000, $60,000 budget. You're just not going to find a one bedroom unit in a downtown for that amount of money. Uh, and so, and energy efficient. And we ran some calculations with our energy partners in Raleigh, Southern Energy Management. And we realized that anyone living in this space would have an uh, energy bill of less than 50 bucks a month. Wow. Uh, and so 
that really that's when we really start thinking about the energy efficiency yeah. of what we build and how we build in the future. Uh, so that was our, our favorite, uh, probably our favorite project, uh, yeah. just because it fit. It checked off so many of the things Absolutely. that we feel so passionately about and what we're going to be doing in the future. Um, and, you know, able to give tours, uh, although I, I told the clients that, you know, we now have a space we won't be you know, touring in our backyard too often <laughs> anymore. Um, but it, we were, we've been able to give tours to the city of Atlanta uh, public officials so they can see and walk and understand and walk through what this space looks like. And it always just blows people away how spacious it is, how quiet it is, uh, and how it fits within the urban, existing urban context. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just really uh, excited uh, about that project. Um, we love it. And our clients love it. That's that really means a lot to us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And can you also talk about, of course, at the time of this recording, the hurricane has just gone through Puerto Rico. Yeah. Um, they're being hammered again. Uh, our team is working on Ukraine efforts. There's every mm-hmm. day it feels like another disaster. Will you also talk about? I think they're called med pods. Yeah, we. Um, so a couple of things. So uh, we did a quick uh, iteration with one of our shipping containers in partnership with a local breast cancer physician here in Atlanta uh, on how to quickly retrofit one of our units as a, a medical clinic. Uh, and so uh, we took the very first container that we ever built um, uh, in 2017 and we turned, we built that kind of as like our office, but also a marketing tool. And we quickly, we were able to in a day, you know, turn that into a, uh, basically a, a modular, temporary, maybe permanent, semi-permanent uh, medical clinic right in the middle of our neighborhood here in West End. Um, and we were able to have, um, you know, all of uh, the physician, Dr. Spencer, she uh, brought over her equipment, uh, medical beds, um, everything that you needed to be able to support women um, in, um, you know, an urban environment to test and look for breast cancer, uh, to support uh, any women, you know, who, who or and men as well, um, uh, if they have those needs. But it showed just the viability and also the versatility of small spaces right. that we could quickly a retrofit for not just housing, but also services in the community that are so needed and often, uh, um, you know, not available as we just saw here in Atlanta with the closure, soon to be closure of the Atlanta Medical uh, Hospital Medical Center in Old Fourth Ward. Uh, and so reimagining space and backyards and parking lots and subway uh, parking lots, uh, transit areas, transit-oriented development, reimagining that not as these big apartments, but as these small spaces that actually could provide serve critical services and needs for the community and to be built quickly and built, um, you know, with less material, less carbon footprint, and also, but built with the people from the community so that they have uh, jobs to be able to support the housing that we call affordable. Yeah. Uh, I will say though, one of the last major hurricanes that we had, I believe that was 2018 uh, in, in the Caribbean, uh, we were channel surfing and uh, saw on CNN, they had this uh, they were showing this this view um, of all the destruction from the hurricane. Mm-hmm. All the houses were totally destroyed. And all of a sudden you see container, container, container just sitting there. No, nothing happened to it. Nothing, you know, there was no damage. It, there, there was the only uh, uh, structures that were still standing. And I said, mm-hmm. see, that that is how we have to think about the future of our environment. As climate change gets worse and the crisis gets worse, although we're you know, started to create more solutions, but it's a big target. Uh, We have to think about the safety 
uh, and the health of our um, our structures, especially around housing. And that reminded me of even the housing that I've lived in um, in the past. And we live next door to an apartment building that's in terrible shape. Uh, and, you know, health and housing are very interrelated. Uh, and so how do we look at advanced materials and materials for how we built the environment in a way that supports uh, lower asthma rates, uh, supports, um, you know, the safety, lower energy costs and cooling costs, not just for the external environment, but for the people that live in it. So all of this uh, started with a shipping container <laughs> uh, and we've expanded the conversation since then. Yeah, it's incredible. Even whenever you were talking about the kitchen and you mentioned food insecurity later, I also thought, you know, it's just a great, you know, could even be a portable kitchen or a portable grocery store into a food desert. It can be moved in and out of those places and, you know, taken. Yeah, we've been talking, you know, we've we've gotten a lot of people contacting us and we're working with the community of Michigan now um, uh, on this on this as well uh, for the you know, vertical farms and using containers for, yeah. uh, you know, vertical farming to provide year round food uh, for those communities that do need access, don't have access to healthy foods. You know, one example was the shooting in Buffalo, New York. Uh, and what people didn't realize was that was the only grocery store that, that the community had. So after everyone was, you know, after the terrible uh, uh, murders of those in, uh, innocent individuals at the grocery store, that grocery store was closed for a long period of time because of the investigation. So now there's no food. Right. Uh, and so to be able to supply again, it goes back to local supply chains, supporting yeah. local farmers, urban farmers uh, and providing those the, the actual spaces for those farmers to be able to sell and uh, and provide healthy foods in communities, classrooms. When the pandemic hit and schools were closed, we started getting calls about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, how can we you know, is there a way that we can our foundation can partner with you to provide uh, classroom, temporary classroom spaces. Uh, and we even had a conversation with Walmart uh, Foundation in Michigan about looking at providing classrooms in our shipping containers, uh, literally on site at Walmart so that parents who are working in Walmart can be close wow. to their kids while the teachers were teaching uh, there at Walmart. Uh, and so and now we're getting calls from the cannabis industry <laughs> about uh, building uh, for medicinal cannabis purposes, uh, building uh, containers for that. I will say, though, that's the other reason why we are focusing from a business model on a use, which is housing, because we it can go so many different ways. It's hard to operate operationalize that. But I will say we are have been talking to some critical partners uh, who are utilizing shipping containers for really interesting clean tech technologies, clean technologies from wastewater management to battery storage for renewable energy. Uh, so okay. I'm just every day, I'm just totally inspired and excited about the opportunity um, to support, not just provide infrastructure for what we want to do, but support other technologies who are interested and in those companies interested in creating equitable communities. Right. That's incredible. I'm excited to see everything that that comes next because there's certainly no shortage of ideas. And you know, the yep. great thing is we turn on the news and we hear lots of bad things all the time. But conversations like this and the conversations you have every day remind you there's also a lot of people willing to get in there and jump a in lot. Um, yeah, it's a lot. And I tell you what, you know, the myth. There's two myths. One that there's not enough. Uh, there, 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 there's not enough resources to go around, and that's not true. Especially if we if we democratize those local supply chains, uh, it's just, again, it's reimagining what's around you and how to creatively combat uh, problems with what you have where you are. 
the, you know, the other myth is that uh, only there's only enough space for a few people to solve the problem. That's not true. We need everybody. You know, you don't have to build with shipping containers. That's just what we do. Uh, but, you know, we need all the solutions because these are big problems and these are real problems. I just drove by somebody who was evicted not too long ago uh, and all of their belongings were out in the street. All of the belongings that people invest in, you know, let's invest in what we do. That's actually building affordable housing so that we don't have people evicted, you know. Uh, so there's there's that. You're right, Christy. I mean, it. It, it, that is the inspiring piece because we're always bombarded with such negativity. There are so many people doing amazing, mm. amazing work uh, in uh, in the built environment and infrastructure, clean tech, you name it, logistics. Uh, I'm just it, that's what keeps us so excited about the work. That's yeah, that's incredible. And to to speak for a second for about some of those challenges, clearly. You're doing amazing things, but I'm sure it hasn't always been an easy, smooth road. Um, so what <laughs> no. have, especially <laughs> in the global pandemic, um, yeah. so what are a couple of the challenges that you and Maker Studio have faced? And it could be about launching the business or particular projects or supply chain or transportation or something like that. What are a couple of those yeah. challenges and how have you found the creativity to solve them? So everything you said, all of the above. Uh, <laughs> check all of the above. Yes. Yeah, check all of the above. Yeah, starting a business is not easy. Uh, yeah. It's not for the faint of heart. Uh, raising money for something that most people don't understand is not easy uh, and not for the faint of heart, uh, especially when you are working in the construction industry, which is uh, white male dominated and even more challenging, the modular construction industry, which is even sm yeah. a smaller piece of the larger construction industry. Um, and you know the difficult piece about that for all modular build, build, uh, businesses really um, is that uh, 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 disrupting the mm -hmm. idea of what construction is. So that's just challenging for all of us in this space. Uh, but I do see that as grow, as a growing trend. Mm -hmm. um, also, uh, you, know, you know, being a black woman on business in construction is difficult, uh, especially when people see you on construction sites, uh, you're not always taken seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes we've had costs of materials just coincidentally go up once I get uh, on site. Um, and so that has been frustrating and challenging. Um, also, like I mentioned before, the permitting, uh, education around modular construction, cities are just not built for that. The building and permitting offices are not, inspections are not built for that. Uh, and that has cost us a lot of time and money just to even get past being able to get approvals mm -hmm. to be the first uh, and to get our products to market um, uh, has, has is just difficult. Uh, anytime you're the first in anything, uh, it's difficult because you're setting a, a, a new standard. Uh, and so, but that has pushed us to figure out how can we be more efficient so that we can change these challenges into uh, productive elements of providing affordable housing and equitable development. Uh, and or, you know, one of the things that I learned about working in the city when I work for city government is that some systems you just can't change. Mm. Uh, and so you have to work outside of it and think creatively around how to create a new one. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the approach that we've taken. We don't have that much time to keep fighting uh, certain elements. Um, we need to be able to, but we need to be able to have a safe space to experiment and explore and align ourselves with those individuals who believe in what we believe in, which was why we were so excited about raising our first uh, pre-seat round last year to be able to get the manufacturing space that we have now. Mm -hmm. And so now we're at a point though, where all of those challenges have culminated into figuring out how to sustain uh, the company and continue to grow and innovate uh, and build for more people. Mm -hmm. uh, and so having the space and latitude to do that and having products that we can show that we've built that that's a critical piece showing that we've built something um and it's it's approved and permitted 
uh, is, is really helping us to move to move further along. Uh, I will say the other challenge, though, is just um, like a lot of companies, especially woman-owned companies, uh, that, um, you know, are well, when I have to pitch, uh, you know, I don't run this company like a typical construction company where you're bidding. Uh, we are trying to be as self-sustaining as possible. And so I'm, I'm like a tech company, so I'm pitching and trying to raise investment, equity investment, impact investment, different types of investment out there. Uh, and, you know, we've come up against a lot of other companies in our space uh, who never re- really haven't built that much, but they've been able to raise Ton, yeah. you know, tens of millions of dollars because they know someone or they went to this college and I didn't and Ivy League. <laughs> uh, so those are some of the challenges, but, you know, we continue to move forward and continue to find as we peel back the layers, uh, those um, uh, uh, investors and you know, funders, uh, advocates and champions who really are really interested in helping us to solve the problem. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned a second ago trends. What are some of the trends that you're seeing in the industry that you're really excited about? Yeah, so... Uh, we are so a couple of things. One, just modular in general. Yeah. Um, you know, the need for modular. Uh, I think we're starting to turn the tide on people paying close attention to uh, the others in the construction industry paying attention uh, to um, the modular industry. But I think more is coming from just the need to solve these problems. Mm-hmm. And so people are like, the cities are like, we can't keep doing it this way. Conventional construction uh, isn't working. Um, out of space, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, well, and the, the conventional construction way of funding, you know, development right. tax credit, the world is just difficult. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, supply chain with materials, it's so volatile, and having a factory and building offsite helps to solve that problem a lot. And of course, you have better quality control. But then the other trend is building for better, clean as a better clean way uh, to provide um, whether you're building for commercial spaces or residential. And so being just more equipped uh, and looking at advanced materials, uh, renewable materials, mass timber, uh, and building uh, and, and urban infill opportunities. These are really the trends because our cities are growing. I mean, our population, as far as cities, are expected to double in 2050, by 2050. Uh, and so we really have to start solving these problems mm-hmm. quite quickly. And the best way to do it, in, in our opinion, and what we are seeing is, is, is the modular industry. Now, we've seen uh, hospitality industry take advantage. Hotels are starting to utilize modular construction to quickly build uh, their uh, developments, and that way you can start getting your rents and payments uh, quicker. Uh, and so, yeah, I think the sh- the shift is happening. We don't. It's happening because we kind of want it to happen. It's because it's it's happening because we need it to happen, and it's just going to happen regardless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're we're being forced to rethink our models of uh, uh, infrastructure, uh, providing um, um, uh, equitable spaces for as many people as possible. I mentioned that earlier, that it's no, it's no longer just a complete 90% black and brown conversation now, the, you know, indigenous conversation. This is an everyone conversation. It's affecting everybody. You know, people who are graduating from college, they can't afford a home. Right. And so, um, you know, to be able to continue the idea of this so-called American dream, we'll figure out what that looks like for uh, a more inclusive uh, group of people uh, to um, being able to make choices about how you want to live and where you want to live. And also, you know, to build communities where people and kids don't have to leave because they don't have opportunities. You know, these are the questions that we're having to answer now. Uh, And luckily for us, the built environment was different from talking about electric vehicles and and electric, that infrastructure, buildings really are a low hanging fruit. And so what we have to do and part of what has been challenging for us um, is to sell that and tell that story Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. because you tend to see more funding and investment opportunities going to the you know, electric development. And that's great. And that's important as well. Mm-hmm. But buildings, you know, we touch buildings, we interact with buildings every day. And so mm-hmm. we are the construction industry is the second, uh, I believe, second most carbon emissive industry around the globe, but we're the least invested in. Uh, and so we're starting to finally see some trending up of people and organizations and institutions and philanthropic foundations starting to invest in um, what they call construction tech uh, and work that we are doing. So really excited. I think we're in the beginning, in the beginning phase of that, but it's always great. Not always great. It's difficult, but it is great to be at the beginning to set the tone uh, for what we think we need to see more of in the future. And so we are proud to be at that position. For sure. And as we start to wrap up here a little bit, I want to look a little bit more into the future as you are yes. someone who looks at the whole, not just the pieces, as you're at the critical intersection of people and places and cultures and social issues. What is your hope for the future of your industry? Well, I mean, that's a that's a good question. I, I, well, the hope for me is that uh, I can, you know, I can inspire our industry, especially the construction industry, but all industries you know, at a certain point to just to be more multidisciplinary, uh, to understand that we really need to be able to, the only way to solve problems is to have not only a a, a socially diverse and inclusive roundtable, but within that roundtable, scientists, policymakers, social scientists, mathematicians, teachers, those that utilize the spaces that we build have to be the front voices while the rest of us are behind building the change versus those of us building the change, being at the forefront. We really need to be able to build for solutions um, for people who are going to be impacted by um, the effects of how we build in the future. So more of a multidisciplinary approach uh, from a business standpoint, operation standpoint, the future for Maker Studio really is about um, getting more into bio-inspired materials um, uh, and uh, advanced materials um, uh, and figuring out how to build better. Like you can always do better, but build with the natural ecology in mind. And that kind of comes from the landscape architectural background for me. And and just being more, um, building buildings that are more responsive. I call it prosilience instead of resilience. Uh, so proactively uh, engaging uh, our our uh, residents um, and our refugee populations uh, and, 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 and having those individuals lead the charge about how we should build versus the other way around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so more engagement has to be needed. More empathy has to be needed for what we're doing and more of an understanding of the interconnectedness of why we should solve these problems and how. And that's what I think, the, that's how I think for me, that's what I see the future as being. I hope so. <laughs> um, if we if we really need to, to to be able to evolve equitably as the human race um, and as entrepreneurs, so we're all about solving problems. Uh, it's just making sure that they are led by those that we solve for versus the other way around. For sure, yeah, I agree with you one hundred percent. That's an exciting future um, that lies ahead that we'll continue to build together those of us who are ready to solve these problems. Um, yes. And then finally, just as a woman, as a person of color who was in is, in, is still in spaces where people don't look like you, you didn't have a lot of mentors go before you. 
Um, what would you say to other potential entrepreneurs who are wanting to advance their careers in spaces where they may not have a lot of role models or may not look around and see other people that look like them? What it's it's a tough road. It's a challenging yeah. road. You've pushed through a lot of adversity on your way. So what advice would you give them as they're no matter where they're in their journey on their career? Well, um, you know, the first thing is, uh, and I've, I've told some other young young kids this before when I did some uh, some uh, volunteer teaching that number one, it is okay to not be happy with where you are in your situation because for the most part, uh, it was planned that way. But now that you know that, what are you going to do about it? And a lot of the onerous is on us as being the adults in the converse, in the room uh, to help inspire and show the various opportunities that there are to making money, to living a healthy lifestyle, but how to do that in service to others mm-hmm. um, and to to really embrace your differences. Uh, you know, I embrace the fact that I look the way I do and I have blue hair because that's just <laughs> who I am. But it also, I think, uh, at least my feedback has been that it inspires other young girls and young boys to do the same. Uh, and that you really literally can create your own lane. You know, I was told that when I worked for the city and I took it as a negative comment because it was supposed to be a negative comment. But then I've learned uh, to say, you know what, that is a great thing to build your own lane, uh, but but to build it with respect to others. Um, and and again, going back to the interconnectedness. Uh, and so um, that for me, that's that's really what it's about. It, it, the obligation there, again, isn't how quickly you can do something, but the quality of how you can build it and inspire others to be able to have access to build their own change, to be able to teach kids how to build their own homes uh, with, with recycled material, with materials around them right outside, how to grow their own food with a couple of seeds. You know, that is a, that's survival, but it's also groundbreaking. It's, it's game changing mm-hmm. to have that much purpose and power right here at your fingertips. And then how do you use that and how do you leverage that for good and scale it and make a viable company out of it? How, do, how can we promote more entrepreneurs uh, to solve problems? Uh, and again, to focus on that there's enough room for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it, it's all about access. And once you understand that, people get excited. Like, wow, I can actually make it. Yeah, you can. Uh, and it doesn't have to be something that's so big. I think a lot of times we are fed that these problems are so big, which they are, and it makes you feel like you can't do anything about them. But you, you can you know, little steps for big impact. So, um, you know, that that has been just a continuous push and reminder that people pushed for me uh, to be able to do what I'm doing and to to sit where I sit. And and, and that obligation has to continue. Um, and, you know, also knowing that there aren't a lot of people that look like me in this space. I wish there were, because I've had to go through <laughs> a lot of challenges that I, has, have been a waste of money and time. And I wouldn't want that for somebody else. So um, that that really invigorates me. Uh, that, uh, and, and, and it, you know, I've been told to take time out sometimes to really look and meditate on how much we have accomplished Mm. with what little we've had. And when you do that, you remember, get reminder, uh, that you are needed. We are needed for what we're doing, uh, and that we're all needed, uh, to make a difference. Mm. Um, just be as creative about it as you can, uh, and innovative about it. Uh, and, and, and that it's okay to have a different perspective because that perspective is needed. Uh, so, you know, that that's how we approach uh, uh, the question about uh, inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't like the use of the term empowering. I think we have our own power, but to inspire others to use their own power for good is what we are all about. We just happen to use design and construction to do that. So. 
Yes. Well, hopefully like Herman Russell one day in the future, you will have your own innovation <laughs> center. <laughs> in yeah, the, that'd be great. That's right. Hiring more generations. But yeah. so how can people, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so yes. much. I'm an even bigger fan of you than when I started um, <laughs> earlier. How can our listeners connect with you and support Maker Studio? Yeah. Uh, well, again, Chrissy, thanks for inviting me to uh, to this podcast. Uh, that This helps share our story. So we really appreciate it. Uh, but for those interested in learning more about Maker Studio, uh, feel free to visit us on our website, makerstudio.com. Which is uh, M-A-K-H-H-E-R-S. Yes. Uh, it looks like mockers, but it's makers. <laughs> uh, and uh, or they can visit us on social me- other social media um, sites. Uh, so Instagram at Maker Studio, Twitter at Maker Studio, and of course, LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they can find me, uh, my LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram at Wajisa, W-A-J-I-S-A. Those are my initials. Um, you can find me there as well. Uh, and feel free to email us via the uh, website email uh, address uh, form that you can fill out there and we will respond as quickly as we can. Um, you know, and just keep 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 an eye out for us. We're always posting. We're trying to keep up with that uh, and uh, watch our growth. Uh, we are also soon will be... Um, uh, uh, resending out. <laughs> it's been a long time. I've been really busy, but uh, getting back to our newsletter and sending that out. And so there's a way to sign up for that as well on our website. Well, and finally, what is your greatest need at the moment? How can people help? What would What is your action step that you would like listeners to take? Yeah. Uh, so, well, of course, as a company, we're always uh, investing, raising money uh, for investors and funders. So if you're interested in investing and learning more about how to do that, uh, again, feel free to contact us via our website uh, or uh, my email. Um, and, and of course, the company's email, too, which I did not say. Uh, it's uh, build uh, for good at makerstudio.com or my name, Winona Satcher at makerstudio.com. Um, in addition to uh, fundraising, uh, just help in sharing our story mm-hmm. and sharing this podcast um, to others who are either, uh, you know, in real estate and construction, clean tech, or those that need access to uh, housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things, challenges we we have had, and I forgot to mention this, we could use some help with uh, finding those uh, individuals who uh, work for or lead. Uh, community financial institutions uh, or who uh, are, uh, you know, VPs of banking institutions who will want to partner with us to underwrite uh, the, the the buildings that we manufacture because they're not conventional. So it's difficult for, uh, you know, those who want us to build for them to find the financing to build it because banks aren't used to underwriting shipping container homes or modular homes. So uh, we're actively looking for partners in the financial sector. Uh, that might be interested in working with us to create some really great uh, uh, real estate solutions, uh, financing and you know, solutions for those that want to be able to purchase our pods. Perfect. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. This has been an incredible Thanks, conversation. <laughs> um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Hopefully, I'm sure our listeners will too. And thank you just so much for advancing conversations and um, just looking out for for how we can be better as a whole and how we can create a better world for us all. So thanks for the terrific work that you and your team do. Well, thanks, Christy. Same to you and your team. Again, thanks for sharing uh, our story as well as other stories. That's a critical piece of the puzzle. And uh, again, glad to see you again and reconnect and finally had the opportunity to do uh, a session. So 
looking forward to more. (laughs) Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening in. Thank you.